Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A608 After Hours. I'm Monica Higgins. And I'm Uche Meiji. And we are here today with Elif Ukan. And in a moment, I'm going to introduce her. But um, first, some reflections from the week. Um, so Uche, on my end, uh, this week we've had a lot of discussion around that's required self-reflection. And so we've had the subarctic survival exercise where people are reflecting on their teamwork and how they behave in teams under conditions of uncertainty. And they had to watch themselves in their own video, which was extremely difficult for folks. And so reflecting, is this the way I normally behave in teams? And um, if not, what, what would I like to change? And then we had this whole developmental network questionnaire and that exercise, people came away again reflecting on themselves. And it's just so critical to effective leadership to be able to reflect on your own practice. Um, and I think we just really double clicked on that this week. And then I guess the other piece is it's not just self-reflection, but reflecting on your own behavior and how you learn and grow as a leader through and with other people. It's really a relational approach to leadership. So that's what I'm thinking about. How about you, Jay? I'm definitely in the same space, Monica. Um, so those two exercises, so finishing off those or survival in the DNQ, really got me thinking about goal setting. So whether explicit or implicit at an individual or team group level, so like, what are you optimizing for? And this is something we've always talked about, even going as far back as with Slade, thinking about performance and effectiveness. One of the topics that regularly comes up in survival debrief is like what goal your team was actually focused on and when they were trying to arrive at a team ranking. For example, were people focusing on performance, not annoying people or balancing voices, um, which is kind of like member well-being or learning and growth, if you're thinking about that work group model. Were there different goals across the group? Were those goals even shared? And how did those goals impact the team's decision-making? And it even connects, I think, the way I experienced today's DNQ discussion got me thinking about advancement versus enrichment orientation when people were thinking about their own networks. So people were how do those goals, like if I'm really focused on advancement, then that I might even think about my network differently than if I was focused more on kind of personal enrichment. And then there is, of course, that question of advancement and enrichment. Or again, are they on opposite ends of the spectrum or are they actually on an XY grid? And there's a way to kind of think about them that is not necessarily oppositional. So lots of questions, no answers. You know me. Mm. That's great. Yeah. Um, well, we're thrilled to have the opportunity to, to consider, um, you know, um, how self-reflection, learning, teaming uh, came into play in, in your work, Alif, um, and beyond that. So um, just a quick introduction then. Alif Ukan is the founder and CEO of Spoke Context. It's a nonprofit social enterprise which brings compelling public art projects to young learners across the globe. Spoke Context's mission is to leverage the advocacy power of public art to foster cultural integration, equity, civic engagement, and education through art and communities around the world. Spoke's projects provide participants a platform to exercise critical life skills 
tangibly engage with their communities and contribute to the visual landscape in a creative and impactful way. Alif, it's so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Alif comes on, comes back to class every year, um, and it's so wonderful to have a chance to talk to you in this context. So, Alif, um, you know, just take a couple of minutes to share with you, us anything else just by way of intro, and then we'll dive into the questions. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be a part of this new podcast platform. So let's talk about scale. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, the intro is great. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I uh, was really, really uh, inspired by the possibilities of organizational behavioral models while at Hugsy. I spent a lot of time, as you know, over at the business school, um, going into classes about the digital economy, creating uh, high impact uh, enterprises. And it felt like a really natural fit to marry uh, business models um, that generate a lot of money with uh, causes that really uh, mean a lot to me, especially in the education space. So Spoke was really born out of that. Um, We founded it as a social enterprise. I tried really hard to use that model for the first three or four years and then decided to transfer over into the nonprofit 501c3 model because it was just a lot easier to um, bring people on, get the kind of funding that you need for such projects, et cetera. But it was a, a really important learning experience. And I feel like I still really lead this enterprise keeping for-profit business model um, models structure in mind all the time. And I think that really also informs the way that I lead the, the company. That's fascinating. So think, Great. Yeah. Awesome. We look forward to hearing some more. Um, I would love to start off with, and we talk about Spoke, but of course you are a serial entrepreneur. I remember you coming to my office with um, some ideas about putting people to work and and selling their arts around the world. Um, Actually, a couple of different times, a couple of different projects, but... Um, so as you're someone who loves getting things off the ground and doing really big projects, particularly with Spoke and with the community all over the world, given your experience in so many different cultural contexts, what have you learned about entrepreneurship and education that so explicitly has as its goal, speaking about goals, bringing the community together to work towards a common goal? Does anything strike you as especially interesting, exciting, challenging about community-based cross-cultural teaming in your work in education that you'd like to share? Yes. Um, So something that I feel like people don't talk enough about is how entrepreneurship can really address those areas that aren't being met by traditional uh, school systems or organizations. Um, entrepreneurship gives you more flexibility to really address specific problems. It can also allow you to be more broad, more creative, focus on um, innovative approaches to education and really fill in the gaps where school systems are often lacking. So I think that's something that I've been able to do with Spoke. Um, we create these really compelling alternative learning environments where you can really practice these critical skills that kids are gonna need for the future. So we talk a lot about innovation, economy, digital tech-driven economy, 
um, foundational curricula is extremely important and it needs to be a part of what kids are learning. But adding in different environments where they get to exercise um, creative problem solving, negotiation skills, really put the idea of collaboration into practice and really giving them kind of a microcosm to exercise what it's like to work in such an innovation-focused economy, I think is extremely valuable. So I feel like the entrepreneur has that kind of special, special little niche area where we can really address areas that aren't being met or that really need attention. Hey, I, I'm feeling like I, I know what kind of projects you do, but since nobody's mm-hmm. um, actually had a chance, I didn't introduce that. Can you give us an example of one of your um, your community-based global art projects just to give mm-hmm. people a sense of what, what you do? Absolutely. So um, we work with public art. That was a very intentional decision because of its um, external public-facing setting. Um Everything is public art focused. In the past, it's uh, been primarily muralism. Um, so kids come together with artists and create large-scale murals at schools or other prominent places in their communities. Um, there have also been light installation projects. Um, it can happen in all kinds of ways. So it's um, kind of depending on the context where you're in and uh, which artist you're working with. Uh, but primarily, we've done muralism in the past. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting experience to observe because it gets everybody in the community involved. So it's uh, mm-hmm. kind of this little mini uh, simulation of the world beyond school where they get to exercise, you know, really being engaged and active and then also practice being a part of their community and representing their school and speaking with others, practice public communication, public discourse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your artists come from different parts of the world, is that right? Yes. So we're intentionally global and international. We always try to foster cultural understanding, in some cases integration, depending on where we are. And uh, we purposely always choose an artist that uh, is non-representative of the students that they're actually working with so that we can introduce a completely new mm-hmm. culture or perspective to the students. We really want to mix it up. Um Go in from like an assets focus, something curiosity based, um, trying to take a break from pre-existing ideas or notions about others with a concept of difference. So it's it's a really uh, fun experience. Um, a lot of times we get um, consulate, consulate generals involved. They come and do presentations, food. It's just a it's, it's a fun experience for everybody. That's fabulous. Hey, can I ask you, Alif, a little bit Mm -hmm. about um, just how you enter this space? So how is it that your own identity, in any way you want to define this, how has that impacted the work that you've done? And has this shifted uh, over time in your thinking or actions or um, ways of engaging? Um, So I grew up in a multicultural household. My mother is American. My father is Turkish. Um, And I grew up mostly in Minnesota as a kid. I left when I was 15, but it was an interesting time to be half Turkish and have a not-so-normal name in Minnesota in the 80s. Um, I think we were like one 
of three families in Minneapolis that had some kind of connection to Turkey. Um, so I always kind of felt like a cultural translator in a sense. So I was either explaining things to my Turkish family about the United States or uh, to my American friends about Turkey. Obviously had a lot of explaining to do with my name. Um, long and short is that is definitely a huge part of myself. I feel very American and very Turkish. I also lived in Europe for 10 years and did my undergrad and everything in other languages and cultures. <laughs> so I just feel really comfortable in this kind of space. And because of that, I felt like it was the best way that I could contribute something to somewhere else. I feel like I really understand to my core what it means to introduce different cultures and ideas to, uh, to other people and do it in a positive way. Um, and I know all of us are really capable of doing lots of different things really well, but this is just so intrinsically and authentically my background and myself that I felt like I could really best uh, serve and contribute positively to society by uh, doing something that's the second nature to me. Yeah, it feels to me like you're bringing that um, multicultural background, you're recreating that in a way, and the work that you do. That's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Try to. That focus on cultural integration, asset-based approach, looking at different cultures and bringing them in, I think that's super powerful and that's especially now um, across the world, but especially in the U.S. context. So I'm looking at that, then I'm also looking at kind of a core part of what you do at Spoke in additional cultural integration is the cultural significance of art and bringing communities together. I feel like that's a big piece of it. That, I would think that that understanding, that awareness is not necessarily shared. It's not universal. I mean, I think it should be universal, but it's not. And I'm curious as to how you go about making the case for the importance of cultural integration, but also art um, in helping with cultural integration and bringing communities together when you are trying to work with various communities or are you like looking communities where there's already buy-in? If there's not, I'm sure there are people kind of across the spectrum. Some people who are completely bought in, but maybe there's some who are detractors or some in the middle. How do you think about that and work with that? So the first thing that I do and that I encourage everyone to do, if you're going into a community that is not your own or that you're not familiar with, um, really do your homework. Take time to invest in the place where you want to become active and engaged, the more you know about the community and the more you spend time really listening to people, the more it's going to inform how you can contribute positively to that place. And it's going to set up a premise where you can really introduce your goals and your projects where people are more receptive to what you have to bring to the table. So I spend a ton of time really just looking at the specific context of the community and listening to people. And that's the thing about civic engagement. As everybody knows, you're going to run into a million opinions. So you'll find people that think it's great and want to support it. And you'll find people that are a little bit more skeptical. But the biggest thing that I've noticed is everyone just wants to be heard and listened to. So even the people that complain or are against 
what we would be doing or potentially against it or don't understand its importance or significance, if you just give them a half an hour of your time to listen to their their comments, even that goes a long way. And you can learn a lot about what's bothering the community. I've noticed that the end of most difficult conversations, we kind of come out on the other side, finding some common ground. Um, and people are a lot more open than you'd think. So although they might be from a community where they're not focusing on arts, it's kind of a fresh of breath air, regardless of which community you go into. I really don't have a single case in mind where I went into a place and I felt like I just had really strong pushback mm -hmm. from the entire community. Of course, there's always an individual here or there. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, I feel like art is such an accessible way to get people to start engaging with one another. Mm -hmm. And I actively chose art and public art for that reason, because it's such a such a free and open space for dialogue. It's so assets focused, mostly at least, or it it can be it can be abstract, right? So it's open for interpretation. It leaves a lot of space for people to create their own um, opinions or contribute in a way that is meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that ultimately shapes the nature of each of our product uh, projects. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I like what you said about really, I mean, the students know what I, I always say, context is key, context is king. And we really talk about that and really taking the time to understand the context and having that shape your thinking going forward. And I'm glad that it sounds like you haven't had an experience where the context that you were going into, there was kind of this universal, consistent pushback. You did mention, however, that like there are definitely like maybe individuals or maybe subgroups that are they might push back and i probably think that you may find yourself in a situation where you're brought in by the people who are bought in but those people don't necessarily represent the entire community that you'll be working with so you're almost the outsider mm -hmm. who has to do some of this facilitation can you give some examples of like what you've talked about in terms of how you work with in such a situation i mean without giving you don't have to name names and give give it away but just tell us a little bit more so if i understand you correctly um i think we're coming from the different angles so i always or i typically look for areas and places and schools that i feel like would be well suited to our projects so there are instances where others have contacted us um but for example, right now I'm working with Germany and uh, although we're in the state of Bavaria, we were able to look at the different schools together and figure out where this project or such a project could, which, for which school could be really beneficial. So there's usually a little bit of a collaborative process there in the sense where I, I don't encourage moving forward with projects unless I really feel like they're going to benefit the community and the students there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great. So it sounds like you're working with the community extensively before you even decide go, don't go. Mm -hmm. And so they're actually yeah. brought in into that, that visioning process. It's not like you come yeah. in and you say, this is what it is. Yeah. And I think that's really key because I think there's a little bit of arrogance in a lot of uh, philanthropic or social companies that want to do something or have this great idea, but they don't commit the time in these different places 
to really understand if it's suited and if it's really going to help people and make an impact. And, you know, in instances where I physically can't be a part of that deep community integration process, I really select stakeholders that are there on the ground to partner with and make sure that I'm getting the information that I need and to make sure that this is a really collaborative process where everybody feels like they have contributed in some way or another that's uh, going to ultimately lead to Mm -hmm. a positive experience. Mm -hmm. So again, it comes down to being transparent, listening, and being really collaborative with the community. I don't like the idea of showing up in a place dropping a school project and then just disappearing. I think it's something that if you really want to make a lasting impact and really make everyone that's involved feel like they contributed to this greater whole, you're going to have to invest a little bit more time and blood, sweat, and tears to make it work. That's great. I love it. One last question, maybe swimming upstream a little bit. You mentioned that um, sometimes communities will come to you, but oftentimes you actually go you'll select communities. And I forgot mm-hmm. the word that you use. I'm wondering what explicit or implicit criteria do you use to think about communities that might allow you to take this holistic process um, in both visioning and actually executing? So I feel like we have a little bit of a Trojan horse effect because, you know, from from an external view, somebody that doesn't know anything about the intricacies of crafting a project and developing specific frameworks for those uh, learning interventions, someone might think, oh, this is nice. The nonprofit's going to come paint school building with kids. You know, it's mm-hmm. just like this basic kind of mural project. Mm-hmm. So um, having that external experience is kind of like the Trojan horse because inside of the project, depending on which community we're in and depending on their specific needs, we're able to tailor the learning interventions to that specific place. So I'll give you the Germany example. Mm-hmm. Um, they really are looking to work with organizations that are supporting integration. They have the largest amount of migrants from uh, ISIS, Syria, the refugee crises, right? So they're looking for different ways to um, get locals to interact with these new newcomers, right? They want ways to um, allow people to find common ground and get them to uh, work together and do things together and understand each other more. And they just need mm-hmm. a, a platform to do that. So we're really focusing on creating that safe space, that safe interactive space. Um, so in Germany, it's more about um creating a safe space for that cultural integration or that cultural understanding. Whereas in a community like uh, in Brooklyn, we've worked with uh, schools in Brooklyn um, and the Bronx, uh, you know, they're dealing with gentrification. It's completely other needs. So it really depends on what that specific school or community's needs are. But um, I always think that we are most useful in places that are going through some kind of a significant environmental or social change mm-hmm. where there's a pain point and where there needs to be a reset on the kinds of dialogues that are happening, where there needs to be an avenue created for those dialogues to even exist. Mm-hmm. 
So I feel like we're particularly impactful in places that are going through some kind of a big shift and change. Hmm. Wow. We're almost like mediators in a sense. <laughs> I love that. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I mean, it really feels to me like you, as you said, you're a platform, you're a space, you are an opportunity to bring folks together. And it's so fascinating to hear this. It's a multi-stakeholder approach. I mean, mm-hmm. just understanding that it's not just, you know, you, it's the artists who they themselves may come from different cultural contexts. And then there's you know, your sponsors and whatnot that you need to, I mean, it's a big coordination effort, Mm -hmm. but, um, and I love this idea you've left me thinking about, um, about kind of thinking about the ultimate goal, not the just visual goal. It's through the art that we get at this ultimate goal of whether it's integration, it's dealing with some kind of really, local issue or local problem and trying to figure out how to ameliorate the situation kind of from the inside out and outside in. I love that. Um, one other thing I'll, I'll take away, Alif, and I'll pass it over to Uche, his thoughts, um, was you said early on, you said you take this asset-based perspective, which I don't know if you remember in A608, we always talk about the asset-based perspective, but then you also added onto that, I just love this, this, you said a curiosity-based lens and this notion of being curious. Um, I just, I simply love that orientation and it is this inquiry-based perspective, which is so hard. We're all biased towards action, but to just stop and, and, and listen, um, which you do so well. So very inspiring. Thank you. Thank Uche, you. What did you what, what's this left you thinking about? <laughs> um, so I think one of my questions had a false premise. So when I asked you, Alif, about how do you think, like, how do you deal with potential pushback or conflict with an idea? And I think that was premised on the idea of you seeing a pro- potential problem and then coming up with a potential solution for it and then presenting it to the people in the community and getting pushback. And I like how you gently nudged me back into, well, actually, yeah. we see what we think is the problem, but as far as like even really defining the problem and coming up with a potential idea or vision, that's earlier upstream in the process. That's where the community actually is involved, engaged, and mm. taking the lead. And that makes me think of, like a lot of times when we were talking about visioning, whether it's Jan Carlson or it's in Children's Hospital, like how you, and a lot of this is going to be context dependent, which is something you've been pushing, like how you really engage the people that you would be leading or working with in developing the vision. And it's not about setting the vision and then getting buy-in and that can vary depending on the context and your goal but i really liked how you're talking about it and i liked how you kind of pushed me back a little bit to reconsider um when i came in with that perspective so thank you thank you Mm. it's about to get more interesting because we were always an analog enterprise and Uh now we've moved we've moved our projects to the digital public realm. And uh, our current project has 
basically existing at the intersection of digital and analog engagement. So our website has been reconfigured to basically be a live stream of um, individual and collective art making. And students, um, they're basically getting prompts to collaborate with the artist, which is on part X of the world and they're on part Y, right? Um, They're working collaboratively in the digital space but they also have prompts to go out into their community and do other do exercises that are safe in this time of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're still getting this, um, this analog community-based experience, but we're able to bring it also into the digital world and give them an opportunity to exercise what it means to use digital technology in a really positive and inf- informational way rather than simply just for social means, which is often the case um, in younger students. So um, this this shift to digital has been a really fun and interesting challenge. And it's kind of forced us to answer the longstanding question of how are we going to scale this? Um, we're able to do collaborations now, not just between students and, uh, students and artists um, internationally, but now we're bringing in multi-schools. So we'll have a school in the United States working with a school in Europe. Oh. So it's uh, it's taking a new form, and I'm really excited about it. Oh. I love this. That I does love, sound so uh, exciting. I love how the response <laughs> to, again, it's kind of like I was saying earlier, never waste um, a crisis. Like the, the response to the situation, this unfortunate oh. situation we find ourselves in with COVID, um, is actually forcing you to rethink structural more long-term shift um, as you go forward. Mm-hmm. So even as yeah. unfortunate and, and as dire as our situation is, then we can try to see what we can pull from it going forward. So there might even be yeah. more opportunities for collaboration and learning this way. Exactly. I, I actually kind of think that's the case. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. It's exciting. Um, Alif, do you mind if we end with some fun rapid fire type questions? Go for it. <laughs> okay. So the first one we ask everybody, and you can answer any way you want, is what's your favorite dessert? Okay, this is going against the rules, but I always do that. So two answers, because I know it's ice cream over there. So I'm going to say peppermint <laughs> ice cream, which I don't think you can get anywhere. <laughs> it's like a 1980s flavor. Peppermint ice cream. Peppermint, you're right, cream. it is. Isn't it? You can't that? find it anywhere. You can find time. it in Massachusetts at like With the old tiny ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little like, yeah. it's like the candy cane in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then my second dessert is sutlach, which is just Turkish rice pudding and it's delicious. And it has cinnamon on top. Oh, I'll make it for mm. you when I come back to Cambridge. Probably. Most definitely. Oh, so how is that different from, I guess, what Americans would consider the, their traditional rice pudding? And say that Did word we, again, the name again. Sutlach, sutlach, which means sutlach. Sutlach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's the most basic Turkish dessert. It's just my grandma has been making it for me. There's no comparison to cinnamon. That's the thing. Cinnamon. Oh my god. <laughs> I, I've never. I don't think I've seen rice pudding in the states. To be honest. 
I might be like living in a hole. Not this is my Trader Joe's thing again. I get two times every time I go to Trader Joe's, and I think I actually put cinnamon. I put cinnamon on it, but I would not think of raisins. Hmm. Hmm. Oh no, raisins! I didn't say raisins. Oh, what did you say? Cinnamon and that's it. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm gonna (laughs) move us in a slightly different direction with my question. Um, So we've talked a lot about context. And we find ourselves in a very unique context, stacked crises of COVID, um, the the response to the police violence, and now we have COVID shooting up here in the States and just had an election. What are you most, what are you most thankful for right now? I personally am most thankful for my health. I uh was in uh, several slightly precarious situations and somewhat unsafe situations since uh, March um, by virtue of my family being all around the world and um, me not living in the same city as any of them. I ended up traveling um, to Turkey. I spent most of the time there and now I'm in Italy and uh, the travel and trying to be around loved ones and uh, the challenge of staying healthy is something I've had to contend with quite a bit. Um, and I, yeah, I had a hard time. So I'm really happy and grateful to be healthy today. That's number one thing. I can't do anything else unless I don't have my health and right. my family's health and your health and all of our health, right? Absolutely. I'm glad that you're Absolutely. doing better. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> All right. Um, last question. What's one thing you wish somebody had told you about life after HGSC? This is such a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> we like big questions. You know that. You remember that? I know. <laughs> oh, gosh. So many answers to this question. Um Well, I don't want to sound a little bitter, but I feel like, and I don't mean it this way, but it, it, no one, it doesn't matter that you went to Harvard. That's something that's really important to say. I know that's probably not such a great thing to say, but um, I don't feel like I ran into this problem so much, but a lot of my friends have remarked on it. Um, it's, it's something that you carry with you. You kind of become a representative of that time and that space. And you can swap out the name Harvard for something else. I'm, I'm mostly referring to this heightened experience of uh, intellectual rigor and challenge. Um, mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have that when you're no longer in that setting that we have at Hugsey or at another graduate school. Um, so just getting prepared to really like shift gears and be able to engage with people on a different level, whether that's challenging in a different way or a little bit more simple and a little bit more at ease just being ready to like kind of power it down slightly or being ready to power it up depending on your circumstances just be ready to be agile I guess that's the short answer Mm. get your agility on (laughs) (laughs) agility on I love that hashtag Mm -hmm. (laughs) hashtag Mm-hmm. My Thank answers you. are super long. I'm sorry. No, we loved it. We, no, loved, we loved it. it. No, thank you. So great to have your perspective. Can we say where you're calling from? Yes, you may. 
I'm in Turin, Italy, oh, in Torino, awesome. northern Italy, near the French uh, Swiss border. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. it's beautiful. Anyone likes wine and delicious food, I would highly recommend it once we're allowed to travel again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wait for that day. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Alib, thank you so much. It's been terrific hearing about Spoke Agreed. and your work and just your perspective. And so it was great to thank talk. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you so much.